Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Evans. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong, He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them. Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. And, O Lord, give us faith Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer 
the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. As the early hours of June 6, 1944, set in motion the largest invasion of world history, much of the world had already been affected by the war since its beginning on September 1st, five years earlier. The United States Marine Corps and U.S. Navy had been at war with Japan since August 7th of 1942. The 25th Infantry Division of the United States Army joined the fray on Guadalcanal on November 25th. The United States began to direct military assistance in North Africa on May 11th, 1942, and completed the campaign by May 13th of 1943 with a total usage of 107,000 ground forces, 210 tanks, and 500 aircraft. The invasion of Sicily, codenamed Operation Husky, began before dawn on July 10, 1943, involving 150,000 troops, 3,000 ships, and 4,000 aircraft, all directed at the southern shores of the island. Not to overlook other important campaigns such as Anzio, Po Valley, Tunisia, and plenty of others, these are a mere sample in the timeline of campaigns to provide a glimpse of effort, hardships, and loss faced by the Allied nations all around the world leading up to the invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of Allied Expeditionary Forces, gives the go-ahead for a massive invasion of Europe called Operation Overlord, with the original launch date of June 5, 1944, but due to bad weather, the launch date had to be postponed. Wrestling with undesirable weather reports, there was a growing concern of the possibility of long-term postponement for the launch of the campaign. However, due to a break in weather, the mission was a go and set to launch on June 6th. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. 
good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. 13,100 American paratroopers of the 82nd and 101st Airborne Division assigned objectives on the peninsula west of Utah made a night parachute drops on the early mornings of D-Day, June 6th, followed by 3,937 glider troops flown in by day. This is Charles Collingwood. We are on the beach today on D-Day. We've just come in. We caught a ride in a small boat which came in from our LST loaded with 1,000 pounds of TNT. While we have been here, we have just seen one of the strangest and most remarkable sights of this invasion so far. Two great fleets of over a hundred gliders have gone overhead, towed by C-47 transports, who are certainly proving the workhorses of this invasion. They've hauled them right over the beaches, and it seems as though the German gunners, amazed at this incredible sight, have uh, stopped firing on the beach now because it's quiet here, and the second batch are droning over now. I can see them. They're casting off the gliders as they circle around over the beach, and the transports are circling around and uh, uh, beginning to, to, to make off home. Where they're landing, we don't know, because we're down here on the beach, and there's a seawall in front of us, and we can't see the land behind. The British 6th Airborne Division was assigned to capture intact the bridges over the Conn Canal and the River Orne. The Free French 4th SAS Battalion of 538 men was assigned objectives in Brittany. Prior to the invasion, 300 men of the Pathfinders companies were organized into teams of 14 to 18 paratroopers whose main responsibility would be to deploy ground beacons from the Rebecca Eureka transponding radar systems and to set out holophane marking lights. The amphibious landings at Utah Beach were undertaken by the troops of the United States Army made up of the 4th Infantry Division, the 90th Infantry Division, and the 4th Cavalry Regiment with sea transport, minesweeping, and naval bombardment forces provided by the United States Navy and Coast Guard as well as elements from the British, Dutch, and other Allied navies. Though the landings at Utah Beach would be considered a success, the casualty and losses for the Allies totaled 197 for the 4th Infantry Division, 2,499 airborne troops, and 700 casualties in other units. The original plans for Point du Hoc had called for a larger Ranger force consisting of companies A and B of the 2nd Ranger Battalion and the entire 5th Ranger Battalion to follow as the second wave. Flares from the clifftops were to signal the second wave to join the attack, but due to the delayed landings, the signal came too late and the other Rangers landed on Omaha Beach instead of Point du Hoc. Some speculate that the 500 plus Rangers provided on the stalled Omaha Beach landings helped to prevent disastrous failures there since they carried the assault beyond the beach into the overlooking bluffs and outflanked the German defenses. This is the way the beach looks, which was hit by our troops about uh, 12 hours ago, early this morning. It's a flat, sandy beach, like almost any beach that you're likely to see, and it uh, slopes gently away from the seashore up to the dunes and then to the sea wall which uh, was the first objective of our troops and which they took early on in the game. The rangers had learned at the top of the cliffs that their radios were ineffective upon reaching the fortifications and also discovered for the first time the main objective of the assault, the artillery battery, had been removed. The rangers then regrouped and small patrols were sent off in search for the guns. 
These patrols discovered five of the six guns nearby and destroyed the firing mechanisms with thermite grenades, with a lost casualty list of 135 killed and wounded. The primary objective at Utah Beach was to secure an 8-kilometer deep beachhead and to link up with the British forces landing at Gold Beach to the east, as well as reaching the area of Easling to the west to link up with the 11th Corps landing at Utah Beach. Utah Beach had been divided into 10 sectors, Charlie, Dog Green, Dog White, Dog Red, Easy Green, Easy White, Easy Red, Fox Green, Fox White, and Fox Red. The untested American 29th Infantry Division, along with nine companies of the U.S. Army Rangers redirected from Point du Hoc, assaulted the western half of the beach. The battle-hardened 1st Infantry Division was given the eastern half. The initial assault waves consisting of tanks, infantry, and combat engineer forces were carefully planned to reduce coastal defenses and to allow for larger ships during the follow-up waves. Very little went as planned during the landing at Omaha. Difficulties in navigation caused the majority of the landing crafts to miss their targets. The German defenses were unexpectedly strong and inflicted heavy casualties on the landing U.S. troops. Under heavy fire, the engineers struggled to clear the beach obstacles and caused later landing waves to bunch up around the few channels that had been cleared. Weakened by casualties taken during the landings, the surviving assault troops could not clear the heavily defended exits off the beach. This caused further problems and consequent delays for the later landings. Small penetrations were eventually achieved by groups of survivors, making improvised assaults and scaling the bluffs between the most heavily defended points. By the end of the day, two small isolated footholds had been won, which were subsequently exploited against weaker defenses further inland thus achieving the original objectives over the following days, with a casualty and loss list estimated between 2,000 and 4,700. Since uh, that time, we have been able to bring in quite a bit of equipment. There are various trucks and uh, jeeps and motor vehicles of all kinds here. There are also anti-aircraft guns. We breached the seawall in various places and have set up uh, guns there to defend against any possible counterattack on the beaches, which has not occurred. Uh, a naval party has just come in from the shore, and I asked him how things were going, and he said it was pretty rough still. I asked him how far the troops had gone on inshore, and he said that they'd got five or six miles inshore, which sounds as though they're making good progress. He said that the beach was still under considerable gunfire. The Germans had some 88s, which we hadn't been able to silence. These boys are apparently having uh, a pretty tough time in here on the beaches. As the morning of June 6, 1944 migrated into afternoon and then into the evening, the young men who landed on the beaches of Normandy continued to fight and perish on the beaches of Gold, Sword, and Juno. On June 8, 1944, after years of planning, preparation, and placating egos among his military peers, Eisenhower was able to report that the Allies had made it harrowing and deadly but ultimately successful landing on the beaches of Normandy. Thanks to the collective effort and military might of the Western Allies and the young men who fought and died on the beaches of Normandy, France, at a cost of 226,386 casualties, a loss of 4,101 aircraft and 4,000 tanks. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. 
And if the microphone sounds a little different or my voice sounds a little different from what you heard at the beginning of the show, that's because that is something that I recorded last year for the celebration of the 74th anniversary of D-Day landings in Normandy, France. And it's kind of cool to think about that this little show has been going on long enough that I can now reuse things that I did a while back. But some of you are probably thinking that's pretty damn lazy, Don. I agree with you. That is lazy. And I am wore out. Um, Got home from work today. Passed out. It is now 11.18 p.m. And I'm doing this podcast because I want to get it out before tomorrow. As some of you know, uh, Memorial Weekend, I was invited out to the National Museum of the Pacific War by Jeff Copsetta, the uh, Living History Director. And so I took that trip, and it was a great trip, and I'll get to more of that in a minute. But then I came back that Sunday, um, had to get to the airport at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, flight took off, landed in Atlanta, had a three-hour layover in Atlanta, then a flight home, all said and done i spent probably 10 hours at the airport that day now being six foot five in a small delta flight is not good on the back um, the longer the two flights i was on this older style delta with the uh, smaller seats that don't recline very well and um, when i went out to the museum i was concerned you know we put all this effort this planning um, and cost into this trip out there to record these interviews and to experience all that the national museum of the pacific war has to offer especially to us living historians. And so because of the amount of effort and planning that went into this trip, I took two laptops with me. Now, flying on a budget, I knew that I could only have two carry-ons, and so I had the ingenious idea of stacking two laptops in one laptop bag. It worked. It counted as one carry-on. But I'll tell you this, it's heavy. And when you're walking around the Atlanta airport for three hours... It gets heavier. And then you add your backpack on with that. It gets heavier. And then you add the fact that you're six foot five, sitting in a small chair. You've been traveling for 12 hours. Carrying around two laptops and one bag on your shoulder. Plus a book bag. Your back will slowly, methodically give out on you. And it's painful. And so... I get back from Texas, uh, Memorial Day, I'm walking around, and back hurts even more. And it gets to the point where I can't walk. And by the way, if you're in the Texas area, and you're a reenactor, hell, you don't even have to be a full-blown reenactor. If you have an interest in history, and you um, have an interest in reenacting, and you want to get hooked up in their volunteer program, um, that's easier said than done, believe it or not. Actually, it's easier done than said. Um... Jeff is constantly looking for new volunteers to uh, join the ranks, if you will, at the National Museum. And so I will put up an address where you can email him if you're in the area and you're interested in getting put on the roster. So I got back to Florida on a Monday, Memorial Day. Obviously took it easy. Back was killing me. Um, killing me to the point that I had to go to a chiropractor. Did the whole laying down for a half hour, got the electrodes on the back and the massage and all that stuff and then he adjusted me and broke my neck and I was feeling good I was up walking around for about a half hour but then I had to take a long car ride because I had to go to work um, out in Lehigh Florida which is about 45 minutes where I'm at so the weird thing about my back ailment is it only gets worse when I sit down so or lay down for that matter so when I wake up in the morning I'm stiff as hell it hurts to move but as I uh, force myself to move 
as the day progresses. I'm feeling pretty good by the time I get home, as long as I'm not driving around too much. And uh, that's where this is leading. So I got back Monday, couldn't walk, went to the chiropractor, forced myself to go to work Tuesday. And then Wednesday at 7 a.m. promptly, I hopped in the car and I drove 17 long, tedious hours from Fort Myers, Florida, up to Warsaw, Kentucky, because my nephew who lives in northern Kentucky, up in a big uh, Florence, mind you, was graduating high school, and it's a big big deal. So my father drove up on his own day, then I drove up. My mom lives up there, my stepsister, my, my biological sister, my cousins, all that. But I'll tell you what, driving 17 hours with extreme lower back pain is crushing. But it gets worse because four days later... Monday, so I got there Wednesday, and got there 1 a.m. Thursday, slept Friday, did some stuff, Saturday, Sunday, left Sunday and Monday, and what a horrible long drive home it was. But now here we are, it's Wednesday, almost, oh, it's almost Thursday at this point, my back hasn't gotten any better. So here we are, um, worn out and beat up, but hey, we're bringing the show to you, I'm rambling on, um, but thanks to Jeff, thanks to the fine people at the National Museum of the Pacific War for inviting me out, allowing me to participate in a program with your guys. On the next few episodes of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, there will be some interviews, some topics sprinkled in amongst the other content about the National Museum because I have gotten so many interviews and I got so much content. I didn't want to just put it in one big bulk episode and blow it out in two days. Um, so we're just gonna we're gonna salt and pepper it in throughout the next episodes. Um, it is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. We're not going to get too much into it other than what we did at the opening of the show because there's it's 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 everywhere. I mean, we're all reenactors. We're all historians. If you're listening to this podcast, it is because you have uh, something special with World War II. And if you're like me, you follow a lot of Instagram pages, a lot of Facebook pages, a lot of Twitter pages that revolve around World War II. And so your timeline is probably inundated with the topic, and that's great. And so I, I figured it really wasn't much that I could get into on that subject that isn't being covered by other people better than what I can do with my shoestring budget. So um, it is the 75th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy, France. There are a few of the people I follow on Facebook who were over there. Um, I reached out to one. I was trying to get an interview set up with him, but unfortunately he's super busy and I was trying to get a hold of him through Facebook and sent Messenger and he doesn't have very good Wi-Fi out there. And so he probably won't see my contact with him until he gets back to his hotel later probably i don't know what the time zone is over there it's greatly different but anyhow back to the national museum of the pacific war i flew out there um, like i said i got there friday got there um, before most of the volunteers because the program really didn't start until saturday so i kind of got the friday behind the scenes was lucky enough to get a um, full-blown tour of everything that has to do with what the national museum of the pacific war refers to as the pacific combat zone because the Pacific Combat Zone actually sits down the street from the main museum because the museum is now kind of broken up into multiple divisions. You have the original um, location where the whole thing started, which was the Nimitz House. Um, it's a hotel, the Nimitz Hotel. And then throughout the years, the collection expanded, and then they started to build the actual museum up the street. And then down the street is where the sound stage, I like to call it, the Pacific Combat Zone is located. And the reason I call it a soundstage is because that is pretty much what it is. Um, 
the Pacific Combat Zone is to reenacting what a skate park is to a skateboarder. It's an area that is built specifically for the purpose and that it is being used for. We reenactors were so used to showing up at an air show, out behind a museum, maybe even to a gun show, a military swap meet, and there's like, you know, a football field worth of grass partitioned off with some caution tape, which is very error correct. A couple of bales of hay out there. Um, maybe an overturned wagon that was used by the farmer down the street. Um, some bales of hay, a couple of barrels, and voila. You got yourself a battlefield in the European theater of operations. And that's the way most reenactings go. And to be honest with you, I've talked to a lot of living historians, or a handful of them, who don't participate in reenactments because of that. They think going out into an empty cornfield or an empty field in the corner of a parking lot just looks silly. It doesn't really... Um, it really doesn't bring anything as far as remembering those who died and they just find the whole thing kind of silly. And so they don't participate in the actual reenactments. They only do the living history side. And I get it. I kind of, I kind of see that, but you know, I still participate. Um, but having a place, a lot, a soundstage, a skate park, if you will, something that is designed to look as much as a Pacific battlefield as you possibly can. I mean, they got palm trees and blown out anti-aircraft gun. They got bunkers, trenches, shell casings, empty barrels all shot up laying around. There are very cool um, pyrotechnics. When the mortar sounds come in through the sound stage, you got dirt blowing up. Um, when the landing craft comes in, you got water pots going off. I shot a video. Um, they're standard operating procedure for the living history program because they want it to come off so well if you never participated they do two shows on saturday and two shows on sunday so they ask you to sit and be a spectator for the first show so you can see what it looks like see what's happening see what's the battle plan is and to be honest with you i'm glad they did because the interesting thing about reenacting as we all know is when you're out there doing it you only see four feet in front of you you know you're, you're focusing on what your job is what your role in the play is, if you will. And so you don't see what's going on around you. I've done many reenactments with tanks, where there's three or four of them. And I may not even see them the whole time I'm out there. I hear them, I feel them, but I'm, I'm not paying attention to them. I'm paying attention to my task. And so it was very cool to actually sit and watch, and in my case, film. I did film it. It will be in the video I'm putting out later. But it was very cool to film the thing because I actually got to see the show for what it was. I got to see what the spectator sees. I got to survey the land, if you will. I got to see the army coming in off their landing craft. The Marines coming in, the Japanese running. And so I was very thrilled once it was all said and done. I was very happy that I had the opportunity to sit and watch and to enjoy the whole show. I strongly suggest you guys go onto YouTube. Simply type in the National Museum of the Pacific War, World War II reenactment, and videos will come up. And if you've been to the museum, but it's been 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 15 years, I strongly recommend you go back because the new Pacific Battle Zone has only been up, let's call it version 2.0, maybe even version 3 at this point, but uh, it's only been put together for about 2 or 3 years now, and so you've got to go back and see it. It's a great show. Jeff and the boys do a great job there. And one of the guys who makes things work is a fellow named Aaron. Now, Aaron's a jack of many trades. He uh, basically manages the motor pool. He um, 
basically is in charge of firing off the pyrotechnics during the show, making the show go. He is the guy up in the top of the bunker, pushing the buttons, letting off the pots. Um, he's the guy behind the scenes. There's a few other guys, but he's one of the guys. Um, and so we sit down with Aaron. Um, he'll be our first interview from the... He's not a volunteer. He works here full-time. So Aaron is a um, full-time employee at the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War, particularly in the Pacific Battle Zone area. And so we're going to start uh, this episode off with an interview with Aaron. And I hope you guys enjoy it. And, um, yeah, 75th anniversary of D-Day. Um, let's enjoy that. Take that in and focus on that. But, um Yep, we're going we're gonna to veer away from that a little bit. Um, I know I'm rambling on. It's late. I'm tired. Um, but I wanted to get the show out there. And before we sit down with Aaron, I just want to remind everybody, let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Um, if you want to support the show, please, 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 I cannot um, beg anymore. Please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Become a Patron link, and subscribe to Patreon. There's a dollar a month plan, there's a $3.50 month plan, and there's a $7.50 a month. If you join the $7.50, I'll send you a t-shirt. So that's out of the way. WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the red button on the right. It says become a patron. I would greatly appreciate you signing up for that. If that's not your bag, you don't want to, and you're an Amazon shopper, while you're on that website, just go ahead and click on the Amazon link. Save that on your favorites bar or create a shortcut to your desktop, however you want to do it. And then in the future, when you do your Amazon shopping, please use that link, and it won't cost you anything extra, but Amazon will kick me some coinage. Um, we have t-shirts, like always. I got a new WTSP shirt up there. Uh, you see everybody walking around with these cross logos with the X with some initials, so I made one out of the 18-inch bayonets using our logo. Um, had a listener from my other podcast, the Waterman D-Train Show. No, I take that back. He's a listener of this podcast as well. He wanted a Suck It Up Buttercup t-shirt so that is now available in multiple colors including od green mine should be here in a day or two the new um yep suck it up buttercut t-shirt is available at wtspworldwar2.com click on the t-shirt link now if you're going to the website on a tablet or on your phone and you're not seeing this stuff wordpress is weird on a computer it'll be on the right hand side but on the mobile devices you have to scroll all the way to the bottom all the way keep going keep keep going yep there right there stop there's a t-shirt. Click on that. That'll take you to our web store. And you can find all t-shirts. I think there's like 16 t-shirts up there now. Um, if you don't want a t-shirt, you don't shop on Amazon. And you don't care to sign up for Patreon. But you are into working out and the athletic lifestyle. Go to sleefs.com. S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Um, anything you buy, use the promo code D41040. That'll save you 40% on your order. And they will kick me some coins that way too. And uh, finally, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing all of Southwest Florida's computer needs since 2004. They do uh, specialize in veterinarian and medical clinics. They do other small businesses, uh, anything with a server, um, sonic walls, security, multiple computers. If you need to secure your web-based applications using two-form factor authentication, they can help you out there. If you need to back up your computers... Online, they can help you with some online backup. They can help you with antivirus programs. If you're not in Southwest Florida, they can still help. Just give them a call, 239-283-1120. They will direct you to their website, and they can log in remotely and fix all of your issues that way. Act-CapeCoral.com or 239-283-1120. And one of the people currently 
in Normandy, France right now is a gentleman named Al. And I was um, lucky enough to meet Al out in Fredericksburg. He is one of the volunteers at the National Museum for the Pacific War. And um, Al runs a beautiful bed and breakfast. It's called the Bella Vista Ranch, located in Fredericksburg. And um, the day I got there, Friday, Jeff said, hey, one of our living historians has a bed and breakfast about uh, 15, 20 minutes from here. His name's Al. He's got like five bedrooms. There's multiple bathrooms, multiple showers. And he's willing to put up some of the guys for the weekend. And I thought I'd offer it up to you first. And I said, absolutely. And luckily, I rented a small SUV. Rented a Toyota RAV4. Because if I would have rented a car in Texas, especially in Fredericksburg, Texas, out in the Highlands, if you will, I may have bottomed out trying to get up Al's driveway because it's a beautiful piece of property nestled up on a hillside in between two cattle ranches. And so the driveway is much like we had in Kentucky growing up. All gravel, a little bit of rises and falls. And so luckily I had the little SUV with me. Made it up there in the middle of the night. Um, And actually that's a lie. Um, I went there in the afternoon, got my key, met Al's beautiful wife. She showed me where everything was, gave me a key. Um, the overlook from this property, you guys can see the video at the What's the Scuttlebutt um, Facebook page. Um, I'll try to put it on YouTube so you can see it as well. But the view from this pop- property is amazing. So if you're going to go to Fredericksburg and you're planning on staying there a weekend or so and you want to get a beautiful, beautiful place to stay, I strongly suggest hitting up Al and his wife at the Bella Vista Ranch in Fredericksburg, Texas. Their phone number is 1-866-427-8374. Trust me, you will not be sorry, especially if there's a group of you. House is beautiful. You can't beat the view. If this house was in California, that view would be a multi-million dollar view. I can't express to you the beauty of the view and how nice it is, especially if you're lucky enough to get the volunteer for the weekend and you're going to do participate in the living history. Um, after ducking, diving, jumping, crawling, rolling all day, Coming home to a hot shower and a queen-size bed beats the hell out of a tent any day. So give Bella Vista Ranch a call. Fredericksburg, Texas, 866-427-8374. Follow them on Facebook. Um, Al's a great guy. He's actually going to join us, hopefully, for the 75th anniversary of Peleliu in Fort Morgan, Alabama. So you guys will get to meet him there. I'm going to try to reach out to him, see if I can get him an interview. It'll be a, a few days late and a dollar short, but hey, that's the way timing works with podcasts. But he's in Normandy, France now. I want to talk to him about his experience. But anyhow, on with the show. Joining us right now, we are... This is actually, probably will be out of order, but this is technically the first interview we are doing here at the, I guess, the facility for the living history um, side of the National Museum for the Pacific War. And uh, joining us right now is the guy who works side-by-side with Jeff Copsetta. He's actually the guy who gets it done. You know, Jeff comes up with the ideas, takes the credit. But this gentleman is the one that actually sees things get done, and he actually gets it done. Mr. Aaron Valander? Verinder. Verinder. Verinder, yeah. Aaron Verinder. Yes. Mr. Aaron Verinder. Aaron... Um, what is your official title here at the National Museum for the Pacific War? Technically, we are in the Pacific War Combat Zone, correct? Yes, sir, we are. Uh, it's the Living History Department of the of the Education Department. So we bring history to life. And my job title is basically Lead Mechanic slash Education Associate. 
but I do way more than that. I, I was going to say, you uh, basically help build and maintain the battlefield. Yes. You're basically the proxy, basically put in charge of the um, placement of pyrotechnics. Yes. You are the um, pyrotechnic engineer who detonates all said pyrotechnics during the um, show. Yes. And now I know there's a gentleman here who's... Role is to be in charge of the uh, weapons and the battery, but uh, you kind of take that on yourself as well. Isn't yeah, it? I do that. That's my main secondary role is armor, and I take care of all the weapons as we go. Now, you, also, you guys have a pretty impressive um, motor pool. You have like what, thirteen vehicles? Thirteen vehicles in dire need of uh, service and repair. That, that that keeps you busy for the most part when uh, Jeff's not, you know, making faces at you through the window when yeah. you're trying to help promote his his show here. And yes, But, you know, that's what Jeff does. Yep. Uh, give us a little background on you. Well, <clears throat> I have a very unique family. It's pretty large worldwide. Um, I'm the, in my immediate family, I'm the first American. I was born in Massachusetts. My mom's Canadian. My dad's English. Well, my affiliation with World War II is my grandfather was an RAF bomber pilot. He was a Lancaster bomber driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was KIA October 22nd, 1943, and uh, bombing Cassell. He was bombing Tiger I uh, tank factories with incendiary bombs. Wow. So he was hit with a BF-110 Messerschmitt uh, night fighter. Uh, he saved his whole crew but his tail gunner and himself. He... Uh, <clears throat> He, he went down on his third mission in his brand new Lancaster. And the irony of it all is he delivered mail to the Mediterranean uh, for quite some time before he got transferred to the bomber groups. So he was pretty familiar with with the area. Yes. And the area in which he serviced as a postal, not really a postal carrier, but a yeah. postal transporter. Yeah, for is the RAF. Is the same areas that he's now laying waste to. Yeah. So yeah, he he did a, a a good a good job. He died at 21, and then my grandmother remarried Mr. Verinder, which he was a sub hunter in the English Channel, flew Catalinas, which was kind of the PBR or float planes. Mm-hmm. And I used to ask him as a kid. I said, so uh, I mean, how many submarines did you sink? And he always just oh two whales. I've always we only got two whales. That's all he would tell me <laughs> when he had three cigarettes in his mouth and a big old thing of scotch. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, World War II was a big thing in our family. And it did it did blow things up. But outside of that, <clears throat> I I was born in Massachusetts and grew up in Texas. I was raised here in Texas, and uh, I I used to work in wildlife before I entered the museum world. And it's pretty unique. I started a year ago, and it's been a wild ride since I started. Now, you have military service underneath your belt, do you not? Yes, sir. I have six years in the Marine Corps. I did Desert Shield Storm as a logistical uh, uh, proponent. It's called the Traffic Management Office of the 2nd Marine Division. And that's where I learned my logistical capabilities. turned out that Desert Storm was the largest and fastest moving American equipment in history. Really? Yeah. Even larger and faster than what we did during the big one? Yes, it was. We moved. We moved it quicker than any uh, amount of uh, equipment that we've ever done in the world in World War II since you know the sure. storm. So <clears throat> a lot of people don't know that, but I was part of that system, and we actually we worked hard from shield to storm, nonstop, no sleep. So that's when I found out war was 
bigger than what you see on TV. Yeah, because when people mm. hear about war, think about war, see movies about mm. the wars, it's all about the front line. It's yep. all about the guys flying the planes, dropping the bombs, yep. having the dogfights. Mm. But in order for those guys to get to where they're going, there's a huge, huge organization of men and women. Yes. Logistics, transportation, planning, everything. I mean, uh, as we all famously know, Patton used to get frustrated when he would outrun his supply line. During World War II, well, that hasn't changed just because technology has gotten better and vehicles got a little bit of better gas mileage. There's still a whole huge amount of obviously fuel, uh, parts, service. I mean, it's insane. For every, I don't know, I'm sure there's an actual numerical statistic, but I don't know it. I'm just going to make shit up in my head. Mm -hmm. For every one guy in the field, there's probably, what, 20, 30 behind him? Yep, that's including family members. Yeah. Family members are the largest support group of anybody in the field. Without that male, because the Germans figured out if they stop the male, kill morale. Yeah, and you slow down those troops because they get they get disconnected, and we figured that out too. So we started bombing Tokyo. But what happened to the troops finding out that their home was getting torched by firebombs? Sure, they were just devastated because they're the warriors and they're the people they were trying to protect. Or they just we just flew over them. So yeah. that was pretty devastating on their end. Well, and it kind of makes sense now. If you, I never really thought about it, but here we are talking about fuel, patent running out of fuel, yeah. um, the need for planes and logistics, but the United States military dedicated a lot of logistics to V-Mail. Yep. A lot of time, a lot of fuel, mm-hmm. um, a lot of money promoting getting the words out about V-Mail mm-hmm. that could hypothetically have been redirected elsewhere, but they knew... That that line of communication, being the only form of line of communication they had back then, was so important that you have to keep your men as happy as possible in its horrible situations. I mean, it's amazing what a simple letter home can do for someone after going through weeks or months of horrible, horrible things, just to have that boost. Yeah. And um, unfortunately for the guys who served in the Pacific, their letters would rot away so quick due to the weather. But in Europe and other theaters where it was drier, more conducive to paper, those guys would read those same letters over. And that, and that hasn't changed either. No, when I got mail, the perfume. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. That's, I would sit there and sniff. Without even opening the letter, I'd sniff the letter for about mm. a minute. Just just getting the aroma of home. I mean, it was, oh, it was awesome. Yeah, there's a famous story, and forgive me, I can't remember. If it, I think it was in Robert Leckie's... Um, with the old breed, mm-hmm. it may even been in, EB, uh, in sledges, but now I believe it was Robert Leckie's. He was talking about one night there was a fight going on. There's a, a ruckus, and they couldn't figure out what was coming from. It turns out it was two foxhole buddies, and they were fighting over the range card. Wow! For the mortars, yeah. uh, well, range card mortar. It had to have been EB sledge because he was in the mortar. Right. They're fighting over the the range card for the mortars because the girls had good intentions at the factory. They actually would kiss the range yeah. cards and then spray their <laughs> perfume on them. Yeah. And these guys have been living in foxholes for months on end. Yeah. They would find it and they would end up getting in fisticuffs because mm-hmm. that, just the smell, the the amount of vision in one's head in a lonely night in a foxhole in a horrible situation where you're looking for anything to try to 
minimize the smell that's stuck in your nostril, the horrible things you're seeing in your head. You're looking for anything. And that smell and that card and and just rubbing your finger over that lipstick, that's like, you know, better than anything that we have on the internet nowadays. And so (laughs) those girls thought they're, you know, and they did do good, but they would inadvertently cause fisticuffs because those guys wanted that motivation. The, the first war movie that I saw I thought was a masterpiece was Forrest Gump mm-hmm. when he, had, he was writing those letters to Jenny. And then, he, then he gets shot in the butt and he ends up in the hospital and they dump all those letters in his lap. I was like, wow. I was like, man, that's that's crazy. You got returned to center. Because when I deployed a lot, well, especially at Storm, once the, the mail followed us all around the world and then end up going return to center. So if I sent metal, uh, uh, um, mails try- out, it never got out. Yeah. It came back to me, hmm. to my base. So then I had to resend everything. Wow. So you get a big old box like of mail, letters that you sent out to family, friends, and stuff like that. And you're like, what? So you have to remail everything. What I did was I just put it in a Ziploc bag, put it in another envelope, and mailed it again. Yeah. But once we got back to, to base, my mail got back out. No spoiler alert. Platoon's 30 years old now. But in Platoon, yeah. Charlie Sheen's writing to Grandma. Or at least when he's doing the narration, he's talking to Grandma. And I think somewhere around the end of the movie, you, there was no Grandma. That was just his way of processing his feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, But I guess we need to get back a little bit on the subject yes, at sir. hand. Logistics, that's part of it. Now, you and Jeff put on between seven to eight shows a year. Yes. And I don't know if this phrase that I've been spitting out all weekend is approved or appreciated but i keep saying you guys are the universal studio of living history because i've done a lot of living history events over the last eight years i've done fort morgan alabama i've done georgia events i've done hundreds of florida events i've done Mm -hmm. events with tanks um but that's usually about it pyrotechnics are usually nil Mm -hmm. um you know i've done one landing craft but you guys literally have a landing craft on tracks that comes out of a building the, the ramp drops, you got fire, not fire, but water bombs going off to, to demonstrate or to simulate mortar rounds hitting around the boat. You got full stereo effect underneath your canopy of your um, amphitheater. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have the visual, because a lot of reenactments, yeah, we can make compressed air pots to throw dirt, yeah. but you don't have the sound effect to go along with it. Right. Now, obviously, you got 30 guys out there shooting, it kind of gets lost in a mix, mm-hmm. and so you can hide it that way. But because of what they have been able to achieve here with the static layout of having a battlefield that is designed for this exact use. I mean, this is essentially a skate park for reenactors. I mean, right. yeah, when you go out skating, you could set up a ramp or, you know, wax on a curb, but it's not the same as a skate park. And so you guys actually have something that you can continue to grow upon instead of building it up for a week and tearing it down, right. building it up. And so you can continue to grow and change things around. Now, I know Jeff said for, it usually takes you and him about 10 days to reset after each show because of the laundry and the we- He said you got to clean 63 weapons. Mm-hmm. And um, just give us a little bit of, how do you guys, I'm, I'm sure at this point you have a pretty well-oiled machine, but mm-hmm. you just came on, what, 2018, 2017? March of 2018. And Jeff said, you are a godsend. He said before you came on, he was trying to manage all this. Mm-hmm. And um, not only do you help him with all that, but you kind of act as a proxy for all the volunteers who can't get a hold of him. Oh, yeah. and, and so you've been able to pick up the slack there. And he just, 
he can't speak highly enough about you. He's yeah. just so thrilled to have you on his staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the weapon side, uh, when I started, we had quite a quite a bit of weapons that were disarray. So we went through each weapon and we ordered parts for them and we we got them going. But our biggest failure is those M1 carbines. They're the they're the toughest things to blank adapt and because mm-hmm. you uh, got to thread the barrels. Yeah, we thread the barrels, but you got to get the hole right, the pressure right in the barrel. And the, the, the carbines, the, the blanks have to be, you know, hot to do what they have to do. And it wears those guns down fast. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that these weapons of war that they made, where their longevity is not very long. Well, they were never use. intended to be used yeah, seven years right. later. Their, yeah. their goal was hopefully two, five years at the most. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to have to come up with some money to replace the carbines because we're getting less and less on the battlefield. But I noticed a lot of the volunteers are buying their own. Yeah. Which is big help. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's huge. Well, Jeff and I were talking about that mm-hmm. on the last episode he was on. One of the nice benefits that you guys are able to do, and I, the group I was a part of on a smaller scale, mm-hmm. not the rehash old episodes, but I worked with a guy named John Thomas, and he put together the 1st Infantry Division. And because his son started when he was 14... He knew that a lot of places, you know, can't start until you're 16, 18 plus. Right. All this stuff's expensive, and so that's a huge barrier to entry for young cats. That's right. why most reenactors are 40, 50 because they have they got Money. they got good jobs and careers they can afford it. Mm-hmm. And so he would volunteer for museums, he'd do fundraisers, and he would raise money and he would buy some uniforms, buy some boots, and buy a couple of rifles. And on a smaller scale, he had a utility trailer, and he would he would try to find 16, 17, 18 year old kids who were interested but whose parents weren't quite sure they wanted to invest the the finances in it because kids have a tendency to change their interests quickly. Right. And so what he would do is, hey, come out, I'll outfit you, and if you enjoy it slowly. And so these kids would start, and someone would fall out, someone would get bored, and someone would fall in love with it, and then they'd go out and buy their own trousers and their own shirt. Okay, well, now i only got to give you boots and web gear. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Christmas rolls around, their parents give them boots and web gear, and so now he's just loaning them rifles. And before you know it, within a year and a half, boom, you got a rifle. And so he was able to kind of do what you guys do. And, and it's so cool to see, and you guys see it here too, you have people who come who started out as just volunteers because um, it's something fun and cool to do on a weekend, right. and then they get the history bug, and then they're spending their own money or their Christmases. And, their, their, mm-hmm. and by them getting their own stuff, it takes a little bit of the burden off you, but also allows you to bring other people in to extend your, your volunteer corps. Right, and what's pretty unique is when I started, there was only a few Japanese on the Japanese side, just yeah. ten, four people, four people at times, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Well, you know, the Japanese are dug in, so they just need a couple of." Heads. That's always the excuse. I've yep. done, I've done, I've, I've done a few tactical events and a few PTO, and it's all well, they're dug in, and yes, that's the truth. I'd rather have four of them than none, right? Because we need, and you know, you always got to have a bad guy to shoot at, and that, and the, let's be honest. It's easier to do a uh, European theater war. <coughs> Go ahead, I'll just edit that up. Yeah. And let's be honest, it'll be e- it's easier to do European theater war because most of these guys, they'll do ally one week and German the next week, and they'll just throw some bad German out there and they'll pass. Right. But a lot of people, one, they don't feel comfortable sometimes, not all the time, but a lot of people don't feel comfortable portraying a whole other race. Right. And two, you know, especially if you're like me, six foot five you're not going to pass off as a japanese soldier too well maybe one or two yeah yeah they actually had big ones every now yeah. and then 
And so it's definitely nice to be in an event where you have more than three guys running from different positions popping up like whack-a-mole trying to yeah. put on the appearance that there's more of them than there actually are. Well, since I expanded the battlefield and the bunkers, I've, our Japanese core has gotten bigger. And one of the other things you guys did, I don't know if you did intentionally or if it's just the way the numbers served out, is you actually have quite a few females play those roles. And so they have the smaller body type. And yeah, they fit the, the distance. uniforms. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they, they fit the role a little better. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're learning the rifles. They're, they're, I've, while y'all were doing the show, I was up there rifle training while y'all were do, where everybody was doing their presentations. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were firing when they were doing the firing demos. And I was telling Jeff, I said, yeah, we're, we're masking our shots by y'all shots. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, it was kind of sounding weird. I said, yeah, because we were shooting when y'all were shooting. Mm-hmm. So I got there. I said, a lot of the, the issues we have with the air sockets are, are operational issues because they're, they're really tight bolts. And you got to have some really arm strength to slam that bolt closed. And, uh, and I'm learning, showing them technique. So they're learning fast. Well, that's the other benefit you guys have being attached to such a large stellar museum is the national Mm -hmm. museum of the pacific war is because what happens is when people age out or their their parents die who fought in the war and they don't have an interest in it they look for a reputable place to donate these family heirlooms to yes and so the museum can only store so much on display and then they can only store so much in their overflow and then they still Mm -hmm. have extra you guys have i know i shot one of them today it was an original Fully automatic, Browning automatic rifle. Yes. Is the secondary fully automatic as well? Uh, it is only uh, semi-automatic. Is that one in the Ohio ordinance? Yeah, it's it's a it's a single shot, and I got that operational last uh, two weeks. Yeah. They couldn't. It was it was a gas uh, issue, so we got that one going. But all your all your M1 Garands are all Springfield branded. Oh, yeah, all original. All original. Yeah. You got how many Arasakas you guys have? Uh man, I think fourteen, and we just got another one. And you just got a. Uh, noble pistol brought to you yes, two days ago very rare yeah I, i'm still trying to calibrate I, I think it's 32 i want to say it's a 32 but i still have to do a little research on it yeah but it's a uh it's a very unique uh small pocket pistol you have a tank yeah the, it's a it's a m3 a1 stewart um it needs a whole new suspension we did get new tracks but the suspension is it needs work and the motor needs to be replaced it's done its lifetime yeah I've I've seen uh, like when they invaded the Philippines, the same radial Continental 670, the A models. Uh, there was uh, what they call uh, M1 Sherman uh, modifieds mm-hmm. in in the Pacific, and they would swap those motors out pretty readily. So they're almost not not quietly, but one could argue they're kind of designed to be somewhat disposable. The engines right. to begin so with. they do their operational run. They do their, they take out buildings. They do this stuff. And then when they get to a safe place, they warehouse them and they have trucks bringing brand new motors in and they swap them out. It's easier to do that than trying to do the maintenance and repair on them. Now I've, I've worked with a few tanks and I've seen a few engines, especially the, you know, the, um, the continentals and all that, that the engine in, in, cause I was walking behind your tank and you had the, the rear doors open. If you squint your eyes and tilt your head to the left, that almost looks like a Volkswagen motor. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, does. Like, it was sledgehammer might work. Yeah, yeah. it looks it, yeah. Uh, from from far enough back. Yeah. It looks like a Volkswagen Beagle motor. Yeah, air cooled. Yeah, it's the, that's the thing about it. It's got to suck air through the top of the tank mm-hmm. and, and 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 run it through those heads to cool it off. And the so, more of those things sit idle. Yeah, it's bad news. Yeah, yeah. So we we have a system down with that tank and that motor. I call it the tank that the little little tank that could yeah because it's lived past that motor needs to go we need a new one but we'll eventually we'll get the money we'll do it we'll swap it well not only do you have great operational vehicles Mm -hmm. 
But out on the battlefield, you have authentic blown to hell vehicles. Yes. That are you have uh, what two tanks? Yes, a Type 97 Chiha uh, Kai model with a 47 mil in it. Um, I, I'm trying to uh, do some preventative work on that tank to keep it from rusting into the ground. But they had used asbestos panels inside, so mm. I've got to get the uh, asbestos remediated. remediated. And then once I do that, I can I can go in and preserve the interior of the tank because they rot from the inside. It might look good on the outside, but it's dying on the inside. Yeah. And the Hago, it's open air because of the large hole that it has <laughs> through it. Boom! Yeah, so, it took it took yeah. a hit. And every time we bring students out to see that Hago, they look at it and they're like, "What? What did this?" I said, "Oh, maybe a soccer ball because the armor's not that great." They go, "What?" And I was like, yeah. No, it, it's it, it did a lot. It was the I can't tell the Pacific War damage to the light because he was sent to a live range in Utah and by the Army. Oh, really? So it yeah. Has modern modern hits on it, but we can't. For what you guys use it for, though, it looks great. Yeah, yeah it looks. It's and we painted it in the uh, the 14 tank uh, battalion on Peleliu that did the the Kamikaze run with their tanks, and they were taken out by. Uh, 1919 machine guns and bazookas because their armor is very thin so it didn't take much to tear them down and another cool thing is is you guys have a landing craft yeah that yeah. is on a track yeah that's it awesome. comes out of a roll-up door in a warehouse yeah which kind of lends to my whole calling it the universal studio aspect yes. because and you have an alligator out there but the alligator stationary yeah, the LVT. Yeah, it won't stay be stationary with I have anything to do with it. Can't be a Marine Fleet mechanic and let a amphibious assault track sit there and rust away. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful yeah. uh, stage prop right now. Yeah. And that's I have a motor for it. One day I might just sneak in at night and put it in there and drive, drive it around town. Just relocate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I I just can't express how cool the program is because. Mm-hmm. I sat and watched the first show, and I, and and for you guys watching, I'll have a YouTube video up later, in a few weeks or so. You got your pyrotechnics going off, you got your smoke pots going off, you got the landing craft comes from the left stage left, the Marines are coming out of the alligator on the right, sound effects and all that. But when you're out there, and anybody listening to this who's a Marine actor, they know this. You can have all the pyrotechnics and, and that in the world, but you're focused and your four foot perimeter around your eyes and. You don't see all that stuff going off. And so I'm so glad that I sat and watched the show live before participating in it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have experienced the full gambit of what you guys were able to do with all your pyrotechnics, the sound, right. and everything. Yeah, it's... it's it. When we first started, we were kind of fumbling. You know, with the, they threw the pass, we're fumbling a little bit, but we caught it, tucked it under, and we're running with it. So we our specific mission for this living history is authenticity. Sure. So that's when we painted those two Japanese tanks in actual regimental colors and, and insignias. The Japanese representation, the truthful Japanese representation is very important to us. I researched the fuel barrels, Japanese fuel barrels. I, I just got it off photos. Mm-hmm. And I've looked at a lot of people who researched the Japanese and a lot of their information was wiped out. Yeah. If the Army and Air Corps or Army uh, Intelligence, Navy... Whatever they captured, there's a lot of information that we get from there. But there was one guy in Japan that I went to his webpage, Taki, or I can't remember his whole name, but he has a lot of Japanese intel. But I, I sent him emails, but I hadn't heard from him in a while. So I don't know what happened with him. But a lot of our uh, insignias or stuff like that are, are from real good sources. We're not sure. going to go look at a book and expect it to be the real deal. Now the 
crown jewel in a show. Actually, before I get to the crown jewel in the show, because you know where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. You guys claim it's the only weapon not firing blanks out there. Before we get to the crown jewel in the show, mm-hmm. leading up to the crown jewel, one of the reasons you guys are able to do what you do when it comes to the pyrotechnics and the crown jewel mm-hmm. is you guys have um, remote air firing, we'll just call them machine guns, that you can place into places that a man can't fit or squeeze to right. help provide ambience. And that in itself is pretty cool. Yeah. That's once again leans to the universal of the... The gas guns. Yeah, because yeah. You, I didn't get a chance to look at your board, but everything you out there, you have out there is remote controlled. Yeah. And you're probably like a conductor back there with levers, slides, yeah. wands. Yeah, it's buttons now. Yeah. It's all buttons. Yeah, well, you could press and fire. You guys went yeah. the tablets, but I'm sure yeah. back in the day it was probably a lot of... Yeah, triggers. Triggers and yeah. toggle switches. Yeah, maybe a plunger here and there. You have two of them. One of them's on display. Mm-hmm. One of them you guys use, and it's the crown jewel. Yeah. And that's the flamethrower. Yes. My favorite weapon that I hate. <laughs> Is the maintenance on that thing a pain? No. Uh, it's We have a, a guy named Charlie that he's really, he built these, and he uh, he told me the ins and outs of them. Uh, the needle and the, and the trigger devices, if it gets bent, it leaks. But overall, they're, they're, they're bug sprayers, man. They... They they do the job. You guys have a concrete bunker at the top. Obviously, mm-hmm. no one's in there. Yeah. And I noticed today, which is very cool, you have a flagpole next to it, and you have the rising sun flag on it. Yeah. And I'm sure this was never planned just because of the closeness of it to it and right. how many times that, fl- that flamethrower lights that bunker up. The edges of that flag are completely seared yep. and black. Yep. But, you know, we've all seen reenactments. We've all heard the pop, pop, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know because of the footprint. How far from the top of that hill is it to the amphitheater where the people are sitting? About oh, 60 yards? Yeah, it's pretty You can pretty feel the close. heat. Yeah, the heat flash will get. And, and when I'm in that bunker, I feel it through the wall. I was up on top of the hill today with the bar yeah. when he was up there. Yeah. And you felt, you feel it. Yeah. I sh- I've shot it in uh, North Texas at a high school in the parking lot. <laughs> and the wind, you know, North Texas wind is, it yeah. whips in circles and goes all over the yeah. place. Well, I, I was the, uh, there was some Iwo Jima flamethrower guy that was there, so I had to show him what I was, what sure. I could do, and they showed me what to do, and I skipped it off the concrete, but the wind caught the heat, just oh, the heat, not yeah. the flame, and blew it to my face, and it felt like my face melted. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. And these operators in, in World War II, they put ivory soap in their fuel to make it gel, and that was the napalm sticky. So that's what here. the additive was? was ivory? ivory soap chips. The Navy hmm. guys, they had, if you look at a lot of photos on Ewo on the, on, the, on the beach, you'll see these drums that were cut in half. And they have a mixer. A guy sits there and mixes the fuels up, and he's loading flamethrowers. Guy comes back, grabs another one, goes back out to the field. Sure. Woody Wilson, he had like one of those fields that he was coming back getting refueled because you burn it off so fast. Yeah, it's like 7.5 seconds. Yes, and you're doing this with anger. And it weighs 70 pounds. Yeah. Hell yeah, my back was... I. They had a fire truck there. I, I said, can I lay it on your bumper? <laughs> I said, I was, and it, it makes me wonder. That's why war is a young man's game. Yeah, I was like, how did these kids do this? Yep. You know, and, and like when I moved the Japanese equipment, they were 5'2", 98 pounds. And a lot of their equipment weighs a ton. And it was all antiquated, and they're yeah. going through mud and yeah. everything. And, and they, they had, the Japanese transport system was horses, and if they didn't eat them, because yeah. they didn't have food. And if they ate the horses, then they had the manpower themselves. So 20 guys would move one gun. Yeah. 
That's insane. I mean, we learned the hard way about mm-hmm. assembling a artillery piece right. with rudimentary equipment last night. Yeah, yeah. So, and then look, look at the size and strength we had. Yeah. And think if you're Japanese, yeah. I was like, wow, man, these guys. And we were trying to put together a gun that's meant to be packed yeah. and unloaded and put together. Mm-hmm. So, and it's light. Yeah. So I was like, wow. And we, had the, mil, man. Yeah, like and we had the advantage of ceiling winches, whereas yeah. they're going out yeah. in the jungle with some bamboo. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a manual that how the field, uh, how they build the field cranes, mm-hmm. and uh, it's similar to what we use for the pack outer, but it's just a wood frame, and they they have that. I have an original in the shop. You hook it up on the top, and you you winch everything up. Well, Aaron, you and Jeff have put together a fantastic yes, um, event here, fantastic mm-hmm. program. You do a great job. Keep it up. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you and yes, hanging sir. out with you last night. Oh, yeah, it was great. And we'll hang out again tonight. Yeah. Um, we will have another guest come up here shortly. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. And that is going to wrap it up for this edition of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us for another episode. Next week, we will have some more interviews. Hopefully, we'll have Al on the phone. He can tell us about Normandy. He can tell us about his experience working at the National Museum of the Pacific War. We can cover two topics at once, continue on what we're doing. Thanks so much. Once again, please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, become, become a Patreon member, and you will get access to videos and content that's only available to Patreon members. They can only get directly through Patreon. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you next week. Or talk to you next week for that matter. Oh, 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 oh